But once again, we'll have a short um, scripture reading this morning, but you can turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 is our four-word sermon passage. But I just want to remind you and set up this sermon this morning. As we get uh, practical in our application of the commandments, we can never forget that preface that we began with. Right Back in verse 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's considered the, the preface to the Ten Commandments that, that applies as sort of an umbrella to everything that comes after. These commands were given to a people who had been set free from their bondage in Egypt. And so the commands only make sense in that context. He could have easily given the commandments to Moses to give to them while they were still in bondage. Right, and said, obey these Ten Commandments, and then I'll let you free. Right, then I'll let you go. Instead, he, he freed them. He set them free from their bondage and then gave them commandments as a, an opportunity in response of gratitude for what Christ had done or for what God had done for them. So since entering the wilderness, God had already shown them continued provision. He had provided uh, for them the, at the crossing of the Red Sea. And as the Pharaoh's army is bearing down upon them, they have no idea what to do. They think they're just going to die right there. They got set free to die in the wilderness. And instead, miraculously, God separates the sea so that they can pass through. Uh, he provides drinkable water for them in a desert. Right? He, he allows bitter water to be turned into sweet water so that they could drink it. He later on provides water from a rock. God could and would continue to provide for them. They had no reason to doubt God's love and care for them. He, he sent manna from heaven. When they got tired of that, he sent quail, gave them meat. He continued to take care of them, even though throughout their wilderness, what did they do? They complained. They grew in, in bitterness. They even desired to be in bondage again, to go back under Pharaoh. And so God's provision for them was, take, was to take care of them despite their sinful and rebellious hearts. God continues to do that for his people today. He continues to provide for a sinful and rebellious people. And in fact, he provides in such a way that he begins to change that heart. He begins to transform it. So the themes of redemption, the theme of ransom and freedom is applied throughout the rest of scripture in spiritual terms. There's physical examples as well, but, but oftentimes in spiritual terms, these themes show up time and time again. Those who were once in bondage to sin have been redeemed by God. Through the substitutionary death of the Son of God, believers have been rescued from slavery to their corrupt natures, and they've been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's the confidence on which we come to the Ten Commandments now. Right? We, we don't come to them before redemption as a means of earning God's favor. We come in response to the favor God has shown us and continues to show us in his Son. 
And so last week I, know, I introduced the biblical principle that no human may take the life of another, whether physically or psychologically. So whether that be through physical, actual murder or through murder in, you know, in hatred and anger towards others. And we applied that to this present polarization in the world, right? That represents this disregard for a very fundamental moral principle. The political and social hatred that we see in this nation has entered into the church. It's really been there, but this is just beginning to reveal some of that division, some of that discord. And so we considered several examples of the physical application of the law, which included abortion, suicide, even negligence in the way we live. And we also pointed to some important exceptions to the commandments, such as capital punishment, just wars, and self-defense. Scripture is clear on all of these matters. There's differences of opinion on them, but where, where the church has, has a differing opinion, it's, it's out of accord with Scripture. And so scripture is clear, but unfortunately the church has not always stood on that sure foundation. They've followed the cultural trend. So this morning I want to elaborate on more of the psychological aspects of the commandment. What are those wicked thoughts that violate this command? What can we do to exchange those thoughts with love for our neighbors, including our enemies? Right? It's, it's not surprising that the way people describe feelings of bitterness and hatred is oftentimes couched in language of bondage. There's this, there's this assumption that we're helpless to change our feelings. Uh, think about it in, in marriages that, that begin to have trouble and challenges. Well, I just fell out of love. I couldn't help it. I just, it just happened, and now I don't love them anymore, and so I, I can't stay in this situation. And my feelings are driving me elsewhere. It's as if we're in bondage and in slavery to those feelings. And feelings trump everything else right now in culture. And if you feel that you've been slighted, you have been slighted, whether or not the person intended to or not. If you feel someone has been racist towards you, well, then you're a racist, whether you intended to be or not. These, these concepts are very much ingrained in our culture, in our academic world, and, and, and yet, unfortunately, they have infiltrated the church as well. So as we read this passage, once again, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is clear on those things that are most fundamental, the most important to us as your church. Lord, we have such a clear understanding of your gospel, such a clear presentation of your gospel, and yet there are still churches that promote a false gospel. There are people who, who say they, uh, they love your law and they walk in, in your ways, and yet they misrepresent the clear teaching of your law. And they twist it in ways that accommodate and suit their own desires. Lord, where we have done that ourselves, Lord, we want to come in repentance before you. We want to be corrected. We want to allow your word to correct us. 
Lord, where, where we have stood firm, help us to have the boldness to speak the truth in love to those who need that correction. Not because we're so desirous of being confrontational, but because your truth and your gospel are worth taking the risk of our reputation, uh, of losing some respect among others who disagree with us. But Lord, help us to respond to that contempt, to that disrespect with compassion and grace and love for our neighbors, even as this commandment implies. So Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are softened by this truth that we would would be transformed, that we would be changed. Before we expect anyone else to be changed, Lord, change our own hearts. Make us to, to fall in line with the clear teaching of your word. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Again, it's a, a short passage. We'll read it. And then we'll, we'll look at a few other passages, but, um, but you won't ne- need to necessarily keep your, your Bible open there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, again, we looked at this last week, and we looked at the the very uh, physical aspect, physical application of this commandment. We'll look today at the psychological aspects. And so the first point is that that you shall not hate your neighbor. You shall not hate your neighbor. I want us to primarily summarize and consider the various passages uh, and, and references in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 136. You can look at that on your own. You could look at all the scripture proofs. We're not going to have time to look at all of them, but I want to summarize this question because it's very in-depth. It's all-encompassing. After stating the physical examples that we looked at last week, and even some of the exceptions... Uh, this question or the answer to this question goes on to provide a list of mental attitudes toward others that leads us to murder. And so these are not steps of thought that the authors devised on their own. They weren't just coming up with a, a list on their own and kind of putting it together. They were looking at scripture. Every single one of the examples in that question are related to a passage of scripture, a command. And so the first recorded murder in Scripture reveals Cain's envy of his brother Abel. He was envious of Abel's sacrifice and the way God was responding to that sacrifice. We actually don't know much of the details. We just know that that he looked upon Abel with envy. And that envy gave way to sinful anger that probably festered in Cain's heart for a time. We don't know how long. But eventually that anger became so deep-rooted in hatred that it led him to rise up against Abel and to kill him. And we could point to several other examples. I think of Joseph and his brothers. Their envy for the way that his father treated him caused them to leave him for dead in a ditch, in a pit. And obviously God rescued him and ultimately restored him with his brothers and his 
his father and the family. But their envy led them to attempted murder. You can say the same thing for King Saul. His envy for David and the way that the people loved and honored David as, as this great warrior, Saul envied that, and so he attempted to murder David on several occasions. When David becomes king, what does he do? He becomes envious, begins to covet Uriah's wife. And so he does, he, he takes her, and then he has Uriah murdered. So it's envy that is oftentimes at the root of murder. Jesus recognized this mental progression and equated each attitude with the final act. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 5. Even to hate your brother is murder in the heart. And so it's not to say that Jesus elevated the command, but that he rightly interpreted the command. The, the murder had already begun in Cain's heart when he was filled with envy for his brother. And that's what James teaches us in James chapter 4, verse 2. That we fight, we, we murder, we hate, we, we, we punch, we wrestle, we do all of these things because of our desires that are within. So any manner of excessive passions might have developed from that envy, but they all took him further down the road to murder. And so they're all uh, degrees of murder. Hatred for our covenant brothers was forbidden under both the Old and New Testament. You can see it in Leviticus 19 and 1 John 3 very clearly. This wasn't something to be, or, or this, this hatred was to be avoided by patient reasoning with one another by bearing with one another patiently, especially those, right, that we find ourselves in disagreement. This is, this is where the opportunity to honor this command really shows its true colors. Our hearts, our willingness to patiently reason, to bear with the infirmities of others. And so when we feel like someone has slighted us, we should not contemplate how we can get revenge. Romans 12, 19 is clear about that. We should instead show them kindness. We know that God will bring true justice in, in the final judgment. Because we're confident of that, we don't have to ensure absolutely fair treatment in this life. In other words, we can, we can suffer wrong and not retaliate. And so notice, though, that while hatred is not an option, disagreements are inevitable. It's not as if you're always going to have perfect agreement and unity. We can strive for that. We can desire that, especially as we are surrounded around the, the primary purpose of honoring the Lord. But we, don't have to, we, we should not expect there to be zero disagreements. This commandment doesn't require that all Christians get along at all times about every matter. It expects that there will be differences of opinion. And I, I think, unfortunately, too many believers want to maintain peace at all costs, including the responsibility to speak the truth, to rebuke, 
to correct one another. They'll set those commandments aside in order to maintain peace. Unwilling to speak the truth in love. Unwilling to rebuke where someone has sinned. Unwilling to correct. Now, we, we learn to do these things with grace and compassion, but too often it's avoided altogether. Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism goes even further than that, than just the, the envy and the anger. It speaks about the emotions that might develop as a means of, of managing our anxiety about tomorrow. I, I thought that was interesting. You think it just begins there with envy, but, but they even say there's something before that. There's, there's the potential that you're worried about tomorrow and that those anxious worries and concerns are, are going to lead you into further sins. They, they may result in, a, a develop, in developing an unhealthy attachment about meat, drink, labor, and recreations. So what that looks like, and, and again, scripture proofs are attached to each one of these in Luke, in Romans, in Ecclesiastes, and in, and in Isaiah. But it's when we make an idol out of things like food, alcohol, work, or entertainment. When those things become idols, when we begin to find our comfort in those things rather than resting in the gospel... Well, then we've, we've, we've wandered away, right? We've, we've left the, the, at least in that moment, we've entered into sin. We've begun to trust in the gifts rather than the giver. Rather than finding rest in Christ, we search for all manner of coping mechanisms to distract us from the miseries of this life. And so we look to food, we look to drink, we look to drugs. We look to our work, our careers. We pour ourselves into that. We forsake our responsibilities as, as spouses, as parents. We give it all up for the career that we're pursuing. Or even for our love of entertainment and our recreation, right? When those things are removed, when those things are taken away, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, if we're filled with anger and hatred toward those who removed them, then it's possible that we've found our comfort in the wrong thing. We've begun trusting in the wrong thing. And so in order to address envy, you have to consider the idol that's at the root of your desire. When we are hindered from getting the things that we idolize, harmful attitudes begin to form. And many of these unchecked thoughts will come out in words that provoke, uh, that oppress others, that lead to needless quarreling with others. And eventually our thoughts and our words might turn into violent actions, like striking and wounding others that might result in uh, or lead to murder. I think this, this is evident in what we see in the folks that are gathering together to riot uh, to, to fight with the police. I would guess that most of their actions have nothing to do with their perception of systemic racism in America. 
but even if that's what starts it, they've they've obviously allowed something to 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 overcome them so that they are filled with hatred and anger and a desire to kill. Not all anger is sin. Ephesians 4:26 tells us that there can be a righteous anger that seeks to preserve the glory of God. Jesus, right? He flipped over the the table of the money exchangers in the ta- in the temple. He was right to do that. It wasn't a sin for him to be filled with that righteous anger. He made a whip and drove the money exchangers out of the temple. But he had a perfect and righteous and holy anger, one that that we find extremely rare in our lives, even on those occasions where we think we're doing the righteous thing. Our our motivation is impure. There is a a way to have anger that does not lead to sin, though. Again, what we're focused on here, though, is is that anger that that leads to a a rage, that leads to a belligerent rage. That can never be considered a righteous anger. One of the beloved characters of G.K. Chesterton is his detective, Father Brown. And he was capable of of solving crime because he could look within his own heart and discover evil motives and thoughts that would lead to wicked actions. And so in order to see through the eyes, that's oftentimes how detectives work, right? They want to put themselves in the shoes of, of the perpetrator, put themselves in the shoes of the murderer so they can begin to kind of retrace steps. Well, the way Father Brown would do that is he would look within. He would see the, the anger, the, the murderous tendencies in his own heart. Now, he's a fictional character, but the reasoning that Chesterton provides him is biblically accurate. And listen to the description of this in Chesterton's writing. This is through the character of Father Brown speaking, or at least thinking in his mind. He says, no man's really any good till he knows how bad he is or might be. Till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Think about, well, give me, I'll, I'll finish the quote. How much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering, talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. He's saying no man's really any good till he knows how bad he is or might be. When we realize how bad we actually could be within our own human nature, we begin to recognize how much we depend upon the grace of God to preserve us. So that we're not always just pointing the finger at those who we, we don't understand, at those who we think that we're so much better than. We, we can first recognize our own tendencies, but for the grace of God, there go I. 
When we see our own tendencies, we, we recognize how much we depend upon the grace of God to preserve us. And so we'll not be overcome with anger simply by developing some countdown method, right? You're filled with rage and anger. We'll just pause, stop, count to 10, breathe in, breathe out. I know these techniques might help prevent you from doing something in the moment, but they're not going to do anything to address the root heart of the matter, right? The, the root sin. They're not going to transform you into a compassionate person. They're just a, a way of preventing you from making a snap reaction. Well, what we need to develop is patience and maturity that would prevent us from being set off in the first place. So how do we do that? Well, once Christ has redeemed us, he has set us free from the bondage to sin and hatred. And so we can learn to love others, including our enemies. And that's where I want to go with our, our last point. You shall love your neighbor. You shall not hate your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor. It's the grace of God that compels us to turn our anger into compassion. And that grace is perfectly displayed in the death of Christ. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one should dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were not the recipients of grace because we are better than our neighbor. We're not recipients of grace because we're not out there riding. No, God didn't die for you because he thought you were a good person. In fact, he died for you because you were the opposite of good. You were depraved. But if you've been redeemed by grace, then you are also being renewed by that same grace. And so those whose thoughts were always corrupt are now called to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise, according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Acknowledging the depravity from which we were saved keeps us humble. And when we recognize what we deserve, we're, we're not so quick to retaliate against those who mistreat us. When we see how much injustice Christ suffered, we can endure our own injustices with dignity and mercy. And moreover, when we recognize how patient God was with us, we learn to be patient with others. And the way we show love in thought, word, and deed should serve to promote life. That's what a loving Christian does. You promote life. So instead of seeking ways to eliminate our opponents, we'll find ways to preserve their lives. And that doesn't mean we must condone their wickedness. We eventually... Or, I'm sorry, we actually care about them enough to correct their waywardness, to tell them that they're in sin, to tell them that they're wrong for what they're doing. We even place ourselves in harm's way in order to defend those who are suffering violence at the hands of their wickedness. 
We defend the rights of the unborn. We learn to subdue our excessive emotions by quieting our hearts before the Lord and resting content in his provision. We're motivated by his spirit to kindness and compassion, to show that kindness and compassion to those who are even filled with contempt for us. We, re- we learn to return good for evil. And so read the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 135. It's this extensive list of examples. The Lord's parable of the, of the Good Samaritan provides an excellent example of, the one, of one who showed love for a person who likely despised him. The Samaritans didn't get along with the Jews. And yet it was the Samaritan who took care of the one who was wounded. In in our modern context, our our culture has has expectations uh, for that same kind of contempt. Contempt for others in a different group. And, And the one that's most prominent right now is that black Americans are expected to despise the police. They're expected to despise them because police mistreat them. But I, I came across one story that flips the script, it's, and it's been making the rounds on social media. Andrew Collins had a, a reputation of arresting criminals. He was a police officer. He had a, a, a reputation of arresting criminals for drug crimes. But on several occasion, occasions, he secured his arrest by falsifying information. He had enough evidence in his own opinion, but he wanted to make sure that that person was put away for a long time and so he'd falsify information in order to make sure that it went through. And so one of these false reports resulted in a 10-year prison sentence for Jamil McGee. Now, after three years of McGee serving his time in prison, Collins was caught. And Collins, uh, all of the, the sentences or, or many of the sentences that, uh, that had been handed down because of his arrests were overturned. And so McGee was set free. Collins would end up spending 18 months in prison for his crime. And then they, inter- they, they came across one another um, out at a park. And Jamil noticed that it was Collins and his, his plan in prison, I mean, he, he fought, he, he, he got into uh, fistfights with, with his fellow inmates all the time because all he wanted to do was get out and kill Andrew Collins. And yet, near the end of that three years, he actually became a Christian. And his heart was begin, beginning to change. And he was beginning to let go of that anger and that hatred for Andrew Collins. And so when he saw him, there was that split second where he actually thought, I could, I could kill him right now. I could do what I had intended to do three years ago. But instead he goes up and he shakes his hand and they, and, and he listens as well, actually Andrew Collins apologizes and 
and in the in the anger that Jamil felt at that moment, all he could do was was respond in, in disgust and walk away. He didn't he didn't reach out, he didn't hit him or, or, or do anything more, but he was he was so frustrated he walked away. But but they ended up working together at a restaurant. He was told that he was gonna work under Andrew Collins. Andrew was at that time kind of mentoring people. Who, who would come in and, and he was assigned to work with Andrew Collins and he didn't want to, but, if, but he, he needed the job and so he took the job and, and over time they developed a friendship to, so the, to the point that they're best friends now. They've forgiven, they've moved on and they're actually good friends encouraging one another. And, and this example is just, it's, it's one of many where ra racial reconciliation takes place through forgiveness, through love. So think about those individuals in your own life who are quick to, who you are quick to despise. And maybe they're relatives with a different worldview than your own. Maybe they're enemies at work who seem to be sabotaging, sabotaging your success. Maybe they're politicians who are enemies of the church. Maybe they're false teachers within the church promoting a false gospel. We can think of a lengthy list of those that we tend to find contempt for. All of them are examples of neighbors whom God calls us to love. We are called to show love even to those who are enemies of the gospel. And so instead of hating those who hate us, we are expected to show them love. Later on in the passage we read earlier, we looked at Matthew chapter 5. In that same sermon, later on in verses 46 and 47, we read this. Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If you only love those who, who love you, then you're no better than the tax collector. If you only associate or greet those who are in your camp, then you're no better than the world. You're to show love even to those who despise you. Our love is broader than the love of the world because our hearts have been transformed by the grace of a Savior who laid down his life for his enemies. And so God turns our enemies into neighbors, and by his spirit, he enables us to love them like we love ourselves. And you will never experience any genuine or lasting transformation apart from Christ. And so we must turn to him. We must repent. We must place our faith in him and trust that he will work in us what we can't find on our own, a love for those unlike us. So let's ask him to fill our hearts with that, that kind of love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenging reminder that we are to love even our enemies. Lord, help us to show compassion to those who, who even hate us. Lord, help us to, to be patient with those who don't see things the same way we do. 
Ultimately, help us to love and honor you in all things, to prioritize your word. And Lord, help us to submit to you. And in doing so, Lord, we know that you will pour blessings upon our head. Lord, we look forward to the transformation that you will continue to do in our hearts, that you'll continue to work as you remove contempt and envy, bitterness, anger and hatred, Lord, place in our hearts a love that is incorruptible, Lord, a desire uh, for the purity that only you can work. Lord, we recognize that in this life our, our motivations will always be hindered by, by sin. But Lord, we look forward to that day when, when all the wrongs will be righted. On that day of judgment. Lord, where all sin will be fully and finally condemned. And where your saints will be given new bodies and enter into an inheritance that is unfading, uncorruptible, unchanging. Lord, we look forward to that day. Fill us with anticipation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.